I'm Gracie Mae Bradley and welcome to the Locating Legacies series created by the Stuart Hall Foundation, produced by Pluto Press and funded by Arts Council England. On the last episode of Locating Legacies, I spoke with Françoise Vergès and we talked about the politics of decolonisation. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Olufemi Otaiwo about the processes by which radical ideas are co-opted by elite interests. Olufemi Otaiwo is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Georgetown University. His public philosophy, including articles exploring intersections of climate justice and colonialism, has been featured in The New Yorker, The Nation, Boston Review, Dissent, The Appeal, Slate, Al Jazeera, and way more. He is the author of Elite Capture and Reconsidering Reparations. Olafemi and I will discuss how politics moves between the world of ideas and the material world, the process by which radical ideas are co-opted by elite interests, and the importance of organising across difference. I am particularly pleased to be speaking to you today because you're a philosopher, which is the discipline that I had my formal training in. And I was listening to you in conversation with Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Robin Kelly at the Socialism 2022 conference. And you made this flippant comment about how 10 years ago, philosophers would be sitting around musing on whether or not the hole in a donut is an object <laughs> or not. Right? <laughs> and that, that really made me smile. Um, it was like a little Madeleine to my old tutor, Mike Inwood, asking me if I'd rather be a mortal human who could write a symphony or an oyster living in a warm bath forever. You know, the kind of scenarios. And I used to think that I ended up where I am despite spending so much time on those thought experiments. And the older that I get, I think, no, actually, I think it is in large part because of that time. So I'm interested in the impact of your training in philosophy on your practice, you know, political, moral, aesthetic, whatever you want to talk about. Yeah, you know, I was being um, I was being a little flip about philosophy um, in that particular conversation. Uh, but, you know, my view about it is actually a lot like yours. You know, I think philosophy, philosophical training, the kind of stuff that we do is definitely potentially compatible with being involved in politics, in the real world, the material world, not just the world of ideals. And I think that for me, you know, it's kind of worked out in the way that's worked out for you. I'm curious, you know, what connections you see to the work that you've done, but I can talk for myself, you know, the kind of things that philosophers do, um, at least philosophers trained in the style of philosophy that I was trained in, you know, analytic philosophy, the stuff that was popular in the US and the UK over the past century or so, they're really big on making distinctions between things. And that's what a lot of these conversations are about, you know, is the space between the parts of a donut itself an object or not, you know, what is an object really? What constitutes being an object? what kinds of things are sandwiches? If I put this on top of that and top of that, you know, it's kind of common bar conversation uh, amongst philosophers, which is why no one invites us to bars. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, what's going on there is people are thinking really seriously about the differences between things, the distinctions between things. And like it or not, we live in a kind of chunky, clumpy world where we don't get 
the gears of society explained to us one at a time, right? We get a bunch of things happening to us all at once, and we have to figure out why those things are happening and what people and what institutions and what social forces are responsible. And a lot of the explanations on offer in the world like to run together lots of things that are maybe unrelated or not related in the way that some people pretend they're related. You know, some people will show up and say a bunch of immigrants came over here and now you don't have a job. Cause effect, right? Those things happened around the same time. One happened before the other. And maybe those people are responsible for this predicament you're in. And it takes a lot of willingness to question the distinctions between things that might look obvious it takes a lot of that kind of discipline and practice to sort through the messy world as we find it you know i would prefer if philosophers were as careful in talking about the actual institutions they inhabit and that they live in and around as they were about donuts. <laughs> maybe maybe you and I can can try to be part of the, can try to be part of the collective of people pushing in that direction. Um, but those skills are transferable. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's interesting. And I suppose when I hear you say seeing the differences between things. I think for me, what philosophy has done has also helped me to see the structure of things and therefore to see the similarities yes. between things that are often presented as being in silos. So, you know, when you're doing kind of civil liberties work and, you, you know, you've got a counter-terror policy over here and you've got a migrants' rights policy over here and then you've got policing over here, you know, I think my training in philosophy really helped me to see, okay, but what is common to these different manifestations of coercive state power for example, help me to see kind of across and between silos. And I think it also maybe helped me to see, um, helps you to see the structure of argument, which I think is very useful when you're scrutinizing politics, because I think that we inhabit a political discourse that is full of false dilemmas. You know, so the migration example that you talked about, either an immigrant comes in and you have no house or you have a house and there are no immigrants. And of course, <laughs> of course, there are a multitude of options that are neither of those things. Um, but the way discourse is structured makes you think maybe not. And I think philosophy is very helpful in helping us to unpick some of those arguments. I mean, I could talk to you about this all day. I'm not going to do that because I don't think everyone will want to listen to that apart from me. Let's talk about your book. So your book, Elite Capture, makes a particular argument about the implications of the elite capture of identity politics for liberation struggles. But you also make the point that elite capture is systemically produced across all kinds of areas of our social world. And so before we get into it in relation to identity politics specifically, could you talk about elite capture as a general phenomenon? Yeah, so elite capture in general is a thing that happens when the most advantaged people in a group end up directing the institutions or resources that could be used for the whole group towards their own kind of narrower interests and aims. So you could think of it as kind of practical inequality. One way we could talk about inequality is just counting stuff, who owns the most acres, who owns the most dollars, who has the most votes in some kinds of 
political systems, like the world banks, for instance, right? And we could just, you know, count those different resources and measure inequality that way. But another way that we could talk about inequality is in terms of control over activity, what people do, you know, who controls what kinds of issues a social movement presses for and makes demands around, who controls um, what sorts of crimes get prosecuted and which get ignored, those kinds of practically oriented kinds of activities. Um, when aid dollars comes in, who ends up in control of how those are distributed, right? And the leak capture is thinking about that kind of element of inequality. So if we then move to identity politics, this is obviously a concept and a practice that has traveled, but let's begin at one of its beginnings. The Combahee River Collective, a group of black lesbian women working in the US in the 1970s are recognized as the originators of the phrase identity politics. And in their seminal statement from 1977, they write that they see their particular task as the development of integrated analysis and practice based upon the fact that the major systems of oppression are interlocking. The synthesis of these oppressions creates the conditions of our lives. Now, many others have made observations and arguments about how certain oppressions are interlocking or co-constitutive or intersectional. And Stuart Hall writes in his essay, New Ethnicities, and I'll quote here, that the term black was coined as a way of referencing the common experience of racism and marginalization in Britain and came to provide the organizing category of a new politics of resistance amongst groups and communities with, in fact, very different histories, traditions, and ethnic identities. So what value do you see still in the identity politics of the Combahee River Collective Statement? And how has Stuart Hall's work on identity influenced your thinking on this topic, if at all? So I think that identity politics and particularly and maybe most importantly, the kind of task of identity politics is just as important now as it was in 1977, you know, arguably more so. I take it that what the Combahee River Collective was up to is a lot like what Stuart Hall was up to, to my understanding of both of them. And that is trying to figure out how the material conditions of people's lives relate to all these particular social forces, social modes of organizing people, right? There are different ways of categorizing people themselves. There are different ways of categorizing people's activity within, you know, production, which materialists have long thought is a particularly important kind of activity that people do. There's kinds of ways of identifying people by geography, the state, nation states, the state system, and all these things are related to each other, but they're distinct from each other in lots of ways. And we're in this complicated situation of, you know, what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, right? What are the distinctions between these different ways of categorizing people? And also what are the commonalities? What are the points of overlap between these different but systematically related ways of fitting people in to a world system that defines our lives. And identity politics 
is a reaction to this deep intellectual problem with a recognition of the deep political problem that is connected to that. People have begun to move around, you know, commonalities in ways that they're categorized by the system. Commonalities around gender as a system of categorization. Commonalities around race as a system of categorization. People have developed ways of looking at the world, affinities for organizations, demands that are based around looking at these categories. But there is still the question of what each of these movements have to do with each other and what each of these movements should produce in fixing a world that not only produces those other people's oppression, but also produces my oppression. And so the Combe River Collective said, like, look, we as people participating in politics are doing it from inside this system. We are affected by the system in particular ways, in identities, the identities, the race that we have, the gender that we have, the sexuality that we have, the way that these things intersect. All those things produce the particular way that we experience the world. And instead of trying to ignore that or paper that over, we should steer into that. We should use that to figure out what our agenda and priorities are going to be. And doing that will help us work with other people rather than prevent us from working with other people. And I think this is one of the ways that we talk about identity politics now that is, you know, in my view, furthest from how the Combe River Collective was talking about identity politics. They were explicitly talking about, we have these differences with the Black liberation movement as it stands and broader socialist feminism as it stands and white feminism as it stands. But that doesn't mean that we conceive of identity politics as just a separation from them, but we are doing this so we can figure out what genuine, meaningful co-participation on terms of equality rather than in terms of me subordinating my life to yours what real coalitional politics would look like. It's an attempt to answer that question. I wanted to explore in a bit more depth than your concerns about the elite capture of identity politics and the dominance of what you call deference politics in certain progressive spaces, academic spaces, organizing spaces. And you alluded to it just then anyway, but can you talk a bit more about the limitations of identity politics as it's being deployed today? I'm interested to hear your perspectives both on how it's being deployed by the right, but I'm really, really interested in how it's being deployed by the left. And I suppose on a related note, the limitations of trauma politics for our political movements, because I found um, the conclusion of your book on that matter really beautiful. Uh, thank you. So I think it's helpful just to mention the rights beef with identity politics, just to set it aside. But, you know, I, I really take it that the right has been actually, at least in the U.S., surprisingly honest about its <laughs> concern with identity politics. There isn't much in the way of even the veneer of a principled criticism. They're like, these people are complaining about racial injustice and we are complaining about that. It's not 
you know, we, <laughs> right? It's not that, that, like, we have achieved a racial utopia or something like that. You know, sometimes people will say that if you press them, but really it's just a negative response to identity-based claims on the injustice of the present order of things. Just kind of openly reactionary in that way. Um, then in the center, you have more of a kind of enlightenment sort of posture where, where people will say things like, we don't necessarily disagree. You know, we agree with anti-racism and anti-patriarchy and anti-homophobia in principle. But those things that we agree with are just extensions of our commitment to, you know, universal liberal values. And we should emphasize the universal liberal values rather than these particularisms, you know, these particular sources of unfairness, because what we're after is something like equality, and equality doesn't make reference to particular or particular aspects of people's life and subjectivity and so on and so forth, right? So then on the left, you have a version of that that is, you know, a little bit similar to the kind of centers complained about identity politics in at least uh, some ways, right? Um, unlike the centrists, there isn't the commitment purely to a set of rhetorical values. There is rather a commitment to a particular strategy or a particular vocabulary of fault finding with the present system and a vo particular vocabulary of organizing resistance to the present system. And so that's the version of the left that usually gets called class reductionist. Um, that's not always fair seeming to me in terms of describing what they think, but you know, that's what I take it the people who are class reductionists have a problem with, with identity politics. Why are you talking about gender or race when you should be talking about the proletariat, essentially? Mm. And, you know, ultimately, I think identity politics, at least as I encounter it now in academia and in organizing spaces, is, you know, less a kind of principled disagreement with any of those three kinds of perspectives and more a kind of subject change. So, you know, the class reductionist says we should be talking about Marx and seizing the means of production, that sort of thing. And the identity politics people will say, you know, something like, well, I'm having this other conversation, which is about which sorts of people in organizing spaces that we uplift and center, what sorts of books and articles and authors that we make reference to and borrow vocabulary from, which people are in positions of authority in nonprofit spaces or maybe even in traditional left spaces. And those are the kinds of questions that we're using identity politics to direct attention to. Uh, in particular, you know, the thing that I've been calling deference politics is that kind of set of moves where conversations start to revolve around who's centered, who's treated as a spokesperson, you know, who we pass the mic to and so on and so forth. And, you know, among the things that get decentered, uh, I think ironically, both by the class reductionists in at least some ways of responding to identity politics and by the deference politics 
wing of identity politics. I think both of them end up decentering the question of what we're actually doing in these rooms and whether or not we're succeeding in doing anything besides, you know, platforming the right people or mentioning the right people. And you would think that it's the political victories of the union, whoever represents it, or the nonprofit group, whoever represents it, as opposed to who's in front of the camera that actually decides whether it's pro-black or pro-queer or whatever the group might be. Mm-hmm. Or pro-proletariat. Yes, yeah, yeah. pro-proletariat, yeah. indeed. And I think I've been grappling with this, right? Because you have this lovely kind of device in the book where you talk about identity politics as a way of reorganizing a room when what we actually need is a constructive program to rebuild the house that we live in together or at least different rooms. And you also talk about, as you just spoke about, this privileging of the process over the outcome. Well, sometimes it's not even the process, just, I don't know, other things entirely that aren't either. Over the outcome. And I think what I've been grappling with is the fact that obviously there is not as neat a delineation between the process and the outcome as we might like in reality. You know, in my experience... Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks a lot about, um, you know, the potential for us to kind of take over existing institutions, use the structures that are there. You don't have to kind of obviously build some stuff, but like there is stuff that's already there that you can maybe try and be in charge of. And I guess that's sort of what I had been doing for the last few years. I suppose one of my reflections is that maybe that identity politics is kind of necessary, but insufficient because Part of me feels like, of course, the outcome is the really important thing. At the same time, in some of these institutions, when you're trying to get to that outcome, the people who are not as invested in that outcome are deploying all kinds of actually quite identitarian. They're not explicitly disagreeing with that outcome. What they're doing is they're saying, you're too aggressive. You're too left wing. This is politically unrealistic committing all kinds of ridiculous microaggressions like there's all kinds of crap that people hurl at you so that you can't get to that outcome and they often they don't have a principled political disagreement with you I've spent a lot of time in institutions actually trying to point out to more senior people like look yes maybe this person and I are really not getting on I actually don't think this is an interpersonal thing this isn't a personality clash I think we're having a political disagreement but they're not calling Mm -hmm. it that right so to stay with your device, I, I guess I have had this feeling that, you know, we, we also can't build a new house if the workers on the construction site have started a trash right. fire in the foundations. Right. That's what I've been grappling with. And the other thing I've been grappling with is the fact that when we voice these concerns about identity politics in, you know, our more progressive left spaces, there are still people there who will then use that as cover for, you know not dealing with sexual violence or like not speaking up for trans people and so on because that's too identitarian it's splitting the movement and so on and so forth so I just wonder what your thoughts are on those points because they're the bits where I'm still working with it yeah and these are the kinds of points that are ultimately why this is you know I'm explicitly committed to identity politics right so it's not the kind of criticism 
where I'm saying we have to abandon identity politics and just focus in on, you know, the immortal science of Marxism-Leninism or whatever, right? Like, <laughs> you know, I, and, and, you know, this is kind of one of the sticking points between myself and, you know, um, me and, you know, maybe it'll turn out that you and I agree and, you know, uh, but disagree with maybe the class reductionist left. So, so let me start by saying this. I do think that the point you started with is totally right, that process and outcome are not totally separable from each other. How we fight for things affects what it is that we actually are in a position to win. And because of that, I think the kinds of concerns that are being brought up by identity politics, um, and even the people who kind of push for sort of deference politics are real ones and we have to figure out ways to navigate those that are compatible with winning political victories outside of our organizing spaces. And I think identity politics is one of the strategies for doing that. So one of the things that I think is that coalitional politics is kind of something that could be ecological. Right. It could emerge out of many organizations, maybe doing different things, but doing whatever it is that they're doing in a way that makes it easier for other ideologically similar organizations to win. Right. So it might be that the trans folks in the union make a caucus, or it might be that black people in a state or city or province have a black movement. And that wouldn't be organization along exactly the same identity lines as some other people might want, you know, and, and that list is longer than the class reductionist left, right? You know, people forget the lesbian separatists who the Combahee River Collective was responding to specifically, um, you know, people forget some, you know, black separatist groups, et cetera, et cetera. But, but there, there have been all sorts of left formations that have said, no, we're going all in on this way of thinking about radicalism and this group of people as potential candidates for radicalism. And we're not going to mess with any other kind of thing. Right. It's not just the class reductionist left. But I think. Whatever it is people are up to and whoever it is that people are willing to fight with and alongside in the particular close, repeated, ongoing kind of way that organizations revolve around, you know, that is all potentially compatible with, you know, broader universal progress, right? You know, if the lesbian separatists end up strong arming the Federal Reserve, <laughs> 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 you know that's going to have some repercussions for the rest of us you know whether they involve the rest of us in that plan or not <laughs> uh, but but all i'm saying is that you know like we think about one of the things i'm rejecting maybe just to put a point on this thought but one of the things i'm rejecting is the idea of coalition that just means you know coalitional politics is when we have a big tent organization and that's the only thing that it could look like. You know, coalitional politics could be a result of a bunch of different, more targeted, focused movements. And identity might well be the organizing principle of some versions of a more decentralized, more distributed, but healthy left ecology. That's a thing that I think. That was helpful. Thank you. 
I wanted to pick up again this point on trauma politics. Right near the end of the book, you write very trenchantly just oppression is not a prep school. And I just wondered if you could say some more about the limitations of trauma politics. I think, I mean, just to, well, I was going to say just to give you some context and then just make a gross generalisation, which probably wouldn't have been that helpful. I mean, obviously, we are in different contexts. And I think that there are some of us in organising in the UK who are, you know, listening in pretty closely to some of you guys in the US. You know, people are drawing from all different kinds of places, but it feels like trauma-informed practice or kind of even just talking about trauma as a ground for anything. I've not had a huge amount of conversations about it in the spaces that I've been in here in the UK. So I I just want to kind of acknowledge that and give you that as context for why it would be interesting. I think because a lot of the people listening will be in the UK. Just say some more about how you got to where you got to on that point. Yeah, so that's really helpful context, actually. So maybe to just give a little bit of context from my side of things, you know, in the US, there's a lot of invocation of trauma, particularly in academic spaces, especially the kinds of spaces I am involved in, in and out of, where it's used as, you know, something like a credential, right? So um, because I've been through this kind of thing, or in some cases becomes, I'm the kind of person that disproportionately goes through this kind of thing, because I'm in the demographic category that experiences this kind of trauma, um, or that kind of trauma, my testimony, my group's testimony carries a weight that your group's does not. And what it looks like to take this trauma seriously is to defer to this group's political judgment as I, representative of this group, represent it. And there's just a lot of things that go wrong with that. I mean, the the move from trauma that someone has personally experienced to trauma that a group has experienced is questionable. Um, I think the move from the trauma group has experienced to the level of authority that it should have as a group is questionable. I think even if you bought that, the move from the authority that a group should have to the authority that a particular spokesperson from the group should have is maybe the most questionable part of all of it. And that's the place that I put pressure in the book, right? So I invite people to notice, Mm -hmm. look, you're not dealing with statistical representations of marginalized groups in the seminar rooms at fancy US universities. You're dealing with people on the other side of a mountain of selection processes, a mountain of filters, right? Only certain people make it through K through 12 all the way, which is our, you know, primary school. I think that's what y'all call it or something. Uh, (laughs) um, You know, uh, only a certain now people go on to higher education to get an undergraduate degree. Only a certain amount of people move on past that to continue studies and go to graduate school, you know, and as I put in the book, some, some people are pipelined to PhDs and other people are pipelined to prisons, right? And by the time you get to a room 
in the university or the White House or the newsroom or whatever it might be. You know, you're dealing with a person who is there because of differences they might have between themselves and the larger marginalized groups. You know, class is an obvious one, but, you know, we could add caste and gender and nationality and all these other things, right? You know, the point that I make is just notice that this is the story of how you're reading this book. This is the story of how you encounter the perspectives that you encounter. And one of the points that I'm making is just that, you know, my perspective might be different than most Nigerians' perspectives. Their perspective might be different than most women's perspectives. They might be different than most queer people's perspectives, whatever the categories we're thinking about. Um, but more importantly, that just isn't, you know, those aren't the questions that we're actually trying to answer in any of these spaces, right? You know, the, the question we're trying to answer isn't how do we statistically represent the views of black people on mass incarceration? Like the question we're trying to answer is, yeah. should there be prisons, right? And that just isn't yeah. an experiential question. Experience is part of how we answer that question. We shouldn't throw that away. But a lot of other things are part of how we answer that question. We have to be willing to take those as intellectually seriously as we rightfully take traumatic experiences. Absolutely. I think it's really useful how you set it out in the book. And I also, I feel like in the UK, particularly in kind of professionalized organizations where people get paid there's a sort of a move towards kind of lived experience and, you know, exactly the phenomenon that you talk about centering people with lived experience and so on. And, you know, it, for me, it was an interesting experience, you know, leading one of these organisations as someone who, like you, you know, is in the room actually because of certain experiences that I haven't had or certain things that I have had access to, right? But I'm not going to just run around yelling about those things because... I don't want to. But you're then trying to say to people, on the one hand, like, yes, you need to be listening to the people who are at the sharpest end of stuff. Also, we need a political analysis for dealing with all of this stuff. Like, not everybody thinks the same thing. It's really homogenizing for your approach to be, well, we'll just listen to them and then we'll have our answer. Like, people with lived experience disagree. Like, everybody has lived experience. Yes. <laughs> it, it can be a difficult conversation to have when you, you're someone who's just when you know that because you've thought about it and I just really appreciate that you've set it out in a pretty analytical way. It makes it easier to have that conversation to people and again, shift to the substantive and shift to that trickier question of, okay, well, what is our political analysis? Because perhaps the organisation was founded with one 100 years ago that is completely inadequate for, for the issues of the present day. How are we going to get to a new one? Um, so yeah, I really appreciated it for that. And so I guess finally, I wanted to talk about constructive politics. And you write that a constructive politics is one that engages directly in the task of redistributing social resources and power rather than pursuing intermediary goals cashed out in symbols. And as I say, I used to run Liberty, which is the UK's equivalent of the ACLU, but much smaller. And, you know, I did attempt a constructive politics there. And what I found, not necessarily purely internally, but across the movement, what I found was that people have become 
And I mean, we can understand why, because like the UK is going to hell in a handbasket, let's be fair. But people have become so used to a defensive orientation and so cowed and so habituated to holding the line as the most that we can hope for, that kind of imaginative, constructive politics is dismissed out of hand as unwinnable or utopian or pie in the sky by way more people than it should be. And so I'm interested in what you've learned from your experiences of trying to build new rooms and where outside of your immediate experience, you've seen that constructive work happen and happen well. So maybe I'll start with the outside my immediate experience, just because it's, I think, the right frame for thinking about both the potentials of constructive politics and the understandable pessimism that people have about it. So one of the things I bring up time and time and again is what's getting called here in the U.S. the bargaining for the common good movement, um, but is actually, you know, I think just as well understood as a kind of return to form of unions. But, you know, historically, labor unions have been able to successfully win lots of progressive changes. Labor unions helped destroy Jim Crow. You know, they helped destroy child labor across the world. They helped destroy apartheid, right? You know, what you can do with the leverage of organizing as workers is not just limited to organizing for wages and benefits. And some unions here in the U.S., are explicitly organizing on this basis. They're saying, we're going to bring in other community members, uh, other organizations into helping figure out what campaign demands should be for workers' unions, and then bringing them in also in the campaigns to win those demands. Um, It's been used by the Los Angeles Teachers Union, Chicago's Teachers Union. It's been used by... um, SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, um, a local in Minnesota, um, to win climate demands and uh, demands around sexual harassment in the workplace. So, you know, people can use those kinds of strategies in unions to fight for broader changes to the political structure and not just local working conditions for people in a particular set of shops. And, you know, I think that use of power to reorganize the world more broadly is the kind of thing that I'm imagining with constructive politics. You know, one of the things we could make it our business to do, understanding that changing the world is a large multi-generational struggle, is, you know, even if we can't do all the things right now that we want to do to change the world, we could ask, you know, how could we make it easier next year to keep this fight going and to win more ground and be able to push for even more things than we can push for this year? Um, Bargaining for the common good is just one way of doing it. Um, But at other scales, you could imagine other kinds of things, you know, developing movement journalism and local news, you know, podcasts like you're doing, right? Um, Citizen science campaigns. Uh, One of the big examples in the book is the way that um, the residents of Flint, Michigan pushed back against the Mm. water crisis by 
recruiting people, recruiting scientists to prove that the state of Michigan was lying about the quality of the water, recruiting lawyers to you know, force them into financial concessions and force them into actually changing the pipes, which is also part of constructive politics, literally constructing the water system differently. Like, it's not a metaphor, right? We literally need to build things, you know. The things we build could be unions themselves, like the Starbucks workers are doing. They could be union strategies, like bargaining for the common good. They could be tenants unions, like is happening in um, Kansas City, for example. They could be debtors unions and ratepayers unions. Um, but you need to build power and the kinds of organizations, the kinds of actions, the kinds of institutions, the kinds of networks, the kinds of practices that can build more power tomorrow. And the question is whether or not we're doing that. And that goes back to our early exchange about you know process versus outcome. It's not so much that, you know, I don't think if you tracked down somebody who was on team deference politics and identity politics, I don't think they would say, you know, no, my only political goal is, you know, making sure a black person is the executive director of this organization, right? I'm sure they would tell you that they have other goals and they think that that intermediate goal serves these larger goals. Um, but I don't think people can necessarily give you a plausible account of how and why, right? Or at least one that I would be persuaded by. I think there's a kind of mission creep where, you know, for the reasons you were outlining, things are crumbling, you know, we've had a prime minister last five seconds, you know, the Tories are ascendant, you know, all we can do is argue about what's going on in this room because we have no power outside of this room. Um, and so people get focused on what looks achievable within the room and their stance towards anything beyond that becomes one of, you know, the wrong kind of hope, the kind of hope that's more like wishing rather than planning. Yeah. That's a, a mindset to break out of, you know, what is, you know, what specifically are we trying to achieve? If we can't achieve, you know, full space luxury communism by next month, then what's the other thing, right? Maybe the goal is getting public renewables, like, people are pushing for in New York. Maybe the goal is getting 24-hour metro service like people are pushing for here in DC where I live. You know, but but concrete changes to the world beyond how we describe it or who's given attention in the world as we find it. Mm, I'll just sit here and nod. Um yes. Like I say, work that I've been trying to do for a while and it's useful to hear you talk about it that way. And I guess, by way of conclusion actually, I'm interested in what you're up to next. Am I right in thinking that you have, are you working on another book? Is it to do with ecology? I may be wrong, but tell me about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm writing another book. It does have to do with ecology. It's an ecological view of freedom. Some philosophers want to know if the space between the parts of a donut is an object or not. My philosophical white whale is what's freedom, right? Um, trying to think about that question is the reason why I developed the politics that I have. And so I'm going to spend some time thinking about that. 
and it has to do with ecology, but not just in the, you know, flora and fauna kind of way, um, but in the way that we were talking about earlier, right? Like, how is it that these different movements organized around different ways of thinking about the world might end up doing coalition, even if that's not what they individually set out to do? You know, that kind of thought about ecology. Mm. Okay, well, I look forward to it coming out. Thank you for listening to episode three of the Locating Legacy series on problematizing identity politics. Join us for episode four, where I'll be speaking with Vijay Prashad about the legacies of the Cold War and how it can be a useful point from which to think about our contemporary political landscape. Thanks, and see you next time. Uh